Well, typically, we start off with kind of a recap from last week, but for the sake of time, we're going to just jump into the book we're studying this evening, and that is this book. This is a Z fanning itself, so it's Zephaniah. Zephaniah. It's a little bit of a stretch. Zephaniah. And, and you see in the background, you see this sun that symbolizes a day, and it makes the zero for Lord. So it's the day of the Lord. So Zephaniah, the theme for Zephaniah is the day of the Lord. And so we're going to get into this book and uh, see if we can make our way through it. I think we can. Uh, let's talk about the prophet. We don't know a lot about Zephaniah. We really don't. About all we know about Zephaniah is in verse 1. It says, The word of the Lord came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushai, the son of Gedaliah, I think that's right, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, the king of Judah. So this is what we know about him. Uh, he prophesied to the nation of Judah, and he prophesied during the early part of King Josiah's reign. Now, there were not a whole lot of good kings. If you remember way back in the eons of time when we went through the kings and, uh, and the chronicles, there were not a whole lot of good kings. Josiah was one of them. He's often called good king Josiah. And uh, so he came in the early reign of Josiah. If you remember Josiah, Josiah was hidden at birth so that he wouldn't be killed. He was basically a king as a child and then started making a lot of reforms in his teenage years. So we'll get into that in just a minute. There was, he was the, uh, Zephaniah was the great, 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 I think there's one more great grandson of King Hezekiah, who is one of the other good kings. Okay, but here's what this means. As the great, 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 great grandson of Hezekiah, he's in the royal family. He's in the upper echelon. He's in the upper social stratosphere, if you will, of the, of the people of his day. And that's important because Zephaniah really took the leadership, the religious leaders, the royal leaders, really took them to task. So he was of them, but he really gave it to them when he prophesied. So that's a little bit about the prophet. Let's look about the times. This happened about 50 years after Nahum's prophecy. Remember Nahum prophesied about the destruction of Nineveh? We talked about that a few weeks ago. This takes place about 50 years after that. Now, when King Josiah took the throne... Uh, Judah was coming out some really dark times. The two kings prior to Josiah, uh, the two kings prior to King Josiah were very, very wicked kings. So wicked, like I said, that when Josiah was born, they had to hide him to keep him from being killed because he was a threat to the to the throne. And uh, but he was basically installed as a king as a little boy. And was kind of looked over as a boy. And then when he became in his teen years, that's when he started implementing rule and implementing uh, social changes in Judah. Uh, he institutes these series of reforms as a, as a young child, preteen, teen child, which probably was due to Zephaniah. We don't know that for sure, but probably Zephaniah had a huge impact on King Josiah and his reforms. And... Uh, so this means that 
that when Judah reformed, Zephaniah was behind that. King Josiah implemented those reforms, but Zephaniah was behind that. So let's look at an outline. It's kind of a rough outline. It gets, I mean, you, these things never break out clear. This verse is this, and then the next verse it starts this. But this is pretty close. Chapter 1, there's just three chapters in Zephaniah. Chapter 1 is the judgment for Judah. And then chapter 2 through a little bit of chapter 3 is the judgment on Judah's enemies or her neighbors. And then the rest of chapter 3 is the conversion of the nations. Conversions of the nations. So we're going to go through this outline. Let's talk about the judgment of Judah. Zephaniah paints the destruction of Judah in very apocalyptic terms. Look at chapter 1, starting in verse 2. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Sounds like, the remember the flood in Noah's time? Sounds like those kind of terms. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. How do you like to get this in a Hallmark card, right? Verse 4, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal. And the names of the adulterous priest, along with the priest, those who bow down on roofs to the host of heaven, meaning to the stars, and bow down and swear to the Lord, and yet swear to Milcom, which was a, a pagan god. Um, Moloch was who that was. Those who have turned back from following the Lord, those who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. Now, I know we... We hear these words a lot. I mean, you can, as we study the prophets, basically your ears can kind of become numb to this. Yeah, 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 God's going to destroy them. Yeah, 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 God's going to bring judgment. He's been saying this for how many prophets now? Uh, I mean, you just kind of get dulled. But we should never get dulled to the fact that our behavior, and especially our sinful behavior, God takes seriously. It's really easy to get kind of in our head that God is just some kind of cosmic grandfather somewhere that just pats us on the head and gives us what we want, kind of winks at our sin. And God takes our sin very, very seriously. God takes how we treat people very seriously. God takes our actions, our behavior seriously. We are not, I started to say we are not free to do what we want to do. We really are. But we will suffer the consequences when we step outside of doing what God wants us to do. And, and I know that's not a popular message and none of us, really, certainly our world doesn't want to hear that. But I've never seen a parent raise a child that they love to say, you know what, you can do whatever you want to do. It's okay. That never happens. I've never seen a parent that was afraid of, of offending their child by disciplining them. And we serve a God that is so much better at this parenting than we are. And this should not surprise us. So, so this is the judgment he, he paints in these apocalyptic terms. And he says that no one's exempt. Look at verse 7. Be silent before the Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guest. And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's son, and all who array themselves in foreign attire. 
So he's saying no one's exempt. Just because you're in the upper echelon doesn't mean you get off easy here. This is a, this is a judgment upon all of the nation. And you may be thinking, well, not everyone in the nation was probably bad. No, but as the nation goes, so does the people. That is our dilemma in this nation. That's everybody's dilemma in every nation. You know, the nation goes one way and we wind up going with it. And it will be a time of total destruction too. Look at verse 14. The great day of the Lord is near and hastening fast. Those are words we should take to heart. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish. A day of ruin and devastation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I'm depressed already reading this. But this is what's going to happen to Judah. And Judah, get this, Judah was God's people. Judah was us. I mean, we're the people going to church. We're the people here on a Wednesday night. But that was the same for Judah. Just being where you're supposed to be and just saying, hey, I'm a Christian, I'm part of God's people, I'm in God's place, that does not exempt anyone. You've had children before that when you said, why did you do this? And you said, well, they did it. And you say, if they jumped off a cliff, would you jump off a cliff? In other words, you're responsible for you. It's not your connection with anybody. You're responsible for you, between you and God. So then he shifts over and there's this brief bit of call to humble yourself. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. He calls his people to turn back to him and humble himself. Gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nations, before the decrees take place. Now listen to this. Before the decrees take effect. Before the day passes away like chaff. Before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord. Before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. You know why he keeps saying, do this before? Because it's too late after. It's too late after. There are decisions that we need to make for God, and we just kind of keep putting them off. We keep procrastinating. We keep thinking, there's time. I can do this later. I'll get my act together another day. And, and basically, it could be too late to do that. You know, we celebrate Billy Graham's passing because we all know he was ready. And I'm telling you, I've had to do funerals for people that weren't. They just weren't because they always thought they had plenty of time. Had plenty of time to get my act together. I'd counsel with people that think, you know what, I have plenty of time to get my marriage together. And then they don't. We have got to take a lesson from, as gloomy as these prophets are, we have to take a lesson from them and take this seriously and do something about ourselves before it's too late. But then after this call to do something before it's too late, he calls him in verse 3, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. 
how many of our problems would be taken care of if we sought the Lord and we sought righteousness and, and this one's the hard one for us and we sought humility? How many, you know, most of the trouble I get into is because of me, because I'm not doing those three things. And, and, and they're all things that when you think you have them, you don't. When you think you're humble, ah, too late, you missed it. You're doing good until you thought you were, and now it's all gone. That kind of thing. These are things that we have to ingrain in our lives, and we can't ingrain them in our lives on our own because they come from the fruit of the Spirit. Which means to ingrain these in our lives, we have to ingrain Christ in our lives. We have to act like our lives belong to him. Like he is the one who gets to drive. Like he's the one who gets to call the shots. And the minute we stop doing that, we go off the rails. And this is exactly what had happened to Judah. His own people who knew him better than anyone else decided they really didn't need him and they could do it themselves. And they, they go off the rails. And so God promises in the first chapter, that there is this day of judgment, this day of the Lord coming. And they used to think the day of the Lord meant God was going to show up and they win. And it meant just the opposite. But then he goes on to say, hey, and it's not just for you either. God pronounces judgment on all the nations around them. And he pronounces judgment on Gaza and Ashkelon and Ashdod and Ekron. And, and he goes through all of these nations that he's pronouncing judgment on. And then he turns back on Judah one more time. Look at verse 5. Verses 5 through, uh, look at verse 1, excuse me. Verse 1 in chapter 3. He turns back to Judah. Woe to her, Judah, who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not turn in the Lord, trust in the Lord, and she does not draw near to the Lord. Folks, when you find yourself in this condition, you better duck and cover. Do you hear it? Doesn't listen to a voice. Doesn't accept correction. Basically, they're not teachable. When you find yourself in a position where you're not teachable, it's bad news. And then they don't trust the Lord. So not only are they not teachable, they decide they don't need God either. I can do this. I can handle this. And they do not draw near to God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves and, and leave nothing till morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests are profane, uh, profane what is holy. Do you see how bad they've gotten? And they thought they were in great shape. Which is frightening to me because I wonder if I think I'm in great shape, what if I'm not? What if I'm not? So it goes on and, and turns back in, on her. Verse 7, I, will sh I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I've appointed to you. Surely you'll listen to me. I know you've got to get this. I, I know this is important to you. Surely you'll listen. And then it says, but all the more they were eager to make their deeds corrupt. Have you ever known somebody in your life? It may have been you when you were looking in the mirror, but have you ever known somebody in your life and you thought, 
why can't you get this? I know you're going to, this is not hard. This is not right. You can get this. And they seem to go farther away. This is the condition of Judah. And like we've seen through all the prophets, you can unplug Judah's name and plug our name in there. I can unplug Judah's name and plug my name in here. It's applicable to me. And, uh, and then, after he comes back and talks about Judah, then he talks about the conversion of the nations. As always, as we've seen in these prophets, God always promises to put back together what people have broken. The whole trajectory of creation is to get back to where it started. When you look in Revelation, God talks in terms of, of, of as if he's going to create a new Eden. He's going to put back what got broken. And it's a long trajectory, but that's his trajectory, is to put back what was broken. And so he talks about putting back together what was broken. Look at verse 14 of chapter 3. Sing aloud, O daughters of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has declared, or he has cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. And you shall never again fear evil. On that day it is, shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let, your hands, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst. Twice he said that. The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you. Now listen, this is what God is going to do. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will, quiet, he will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. He will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time, I will deal with all your oppressors. And I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. And at that time, I will bring you in. At that time, when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before, the eye, before your eyes, says the Lord. When you hear this description of God, what he's going to do, what he wants to do, what does that tell you about him? Do you ever picture God this way? Do you ever picture a God who rejoices over you, who's glad to see you, who sings when he thinks about you? Yeah, but do we think of him in this way? Do you think about God which, let's put it this way. Which do you think about God more? The God who's being very observant to make sure you're doing what you're supposed to. Or the God that when you see, sees you, he rejoices and sings over you. I don't know about you. It's the first one. It's usually the ones I'm thinking of. Why is that? Yeah, but that's focus on us. <laughs> which we do really well. We focus on us. 
And, and God certainly is going to deal with our sin because this is what the prophets are talking about. But why is it so hard for us to think of God as someone who busts out laughing and grinning when he sees us and thinks about us? Why is that so hard? We've missed that. I'm sorry? No, we don't comprehend his love for us. We really have such a narrow, short view of who he is. And, but if, just if, if my view of God was more the view that God comes running when he sees me, like the prodigal son's father, that he sings over me when I turn around and do what I need to do, when I, when I get it, that he laughs and grins at the thought of me, if my view of God was more like that, I would probably trust him more, respond to him more, not be as scared of him as, as I can tend to be. Well, how do we get to that point? Hmm. <laughs> oh, so you want answers. That's what you want. Okay. <laughs> uh, when I'm doing my devotion, and you know you're supposed to start out praying, I just have a hard time finding all the words for praise. I end up Yeah, yeah. You know... It's interesting you say that. You said, when I start my devotion, you know, you're supposed to start off praising. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. I th that's great. But that's all about what we do. We, relatim, rel, we rarely, I missed that word for me, it just got stuck in my teeth. We rarely think about God being grateful for us. I, I pray when I walk of a morning, and so I go out, and I go for a walk, and I, I, I start talking to God, and, and, and I want to make sure I don't miss anything, and you know, and all that, and uh, because this is what I'm supposed to do. It's early morning. I'm supposed to pray. I wonder if when I get out of a morning, when the garage door opens up and I walk out, what would it be like if God was there going, great, I've missed you. Let's go for a walk. Wouldn't I? Yeah, I'd pass out, and the EMTs would have to come, yeah. Wouldn't that change the way I think about God and relate to God? And, and why wouldn't God do that? Don't you do that with your children, your grandchildren? This evening, my little three-year-old grandchildren, Poppy! And I did the same thing. It wasn't, don't run in church. That's not what you're supposed to do. Pull your dress down. It was none of that. It was, glad to see you. But we have trouble thinking about God like that. And I think that's part of our problem. Yes, yes, I really do. I really think God has become very much more about rules and regulations than about emotions. And if you think God is not about emotions, then you haven't been reading the Psalms. That's what the Psalms are all about. So, I don't know, just a weird little thought in my weird little brain. Uh, we better do takeaways, though, or we're not going to get done. Yes, ma'am.
Yes, yes. Another thing, you know, besides doing those kind of things, if you want to know how God really feels about you, how do you feel about your children? And are you glad to see them? If they mess up, do you say, that's it, I'm done with you and never want to see you again? You know, do you giggle with your grandchildren? I mean, if you'll think about those things, then you got a better feel about how God feels about you. Like I said before, the the hard things that we read in the prophets is not because God wants to get back at us. He wants to get us back. He's the prodigal son's father waiting for him. Yes, ma'am. Yes. Yeah, we're very, I think the right word is myopic. I love using words that I'm not really sure I know the meaning of. Um, yeah, we're, we're, we're very all about us when we think about God. And, and yet, would you want your children to always come to you feeling so guilty and so burdened that they couldn't enjoy you? No, you'd want them to fix whatever was making them guilty, absolutely. But then you'd want them to enjoy you and you and them. All right, some quick takeaways because we had such a great business meeting. This is as far as we're getting. If God is, this is more of a question. If God is primarily a God of wrath, why does he give us so many warnings? Yes. But we typically, especially when you're reading through these prophets, you think, man, God's just a God of wrath. If that's his main method of operation, then why give all these warnings? Why not just bust them? You know, why count to three? Or in God's case, three million. Why? He loves us. So if God is a God of wrath, he wouldn't, I mean, if that's his primary gig, then he wouldn't be doing that. That says something about who he is. Another one. The day of the Lord will either be a fearful or a freeing thing. And it depends upon where you stand with him. I, as a hospice chaplain, I watched a lot of people die. I watched them right up to the moment. And I've seen people be so peaceful and joyful. And I've seen people kicking and screaming. It depends upon the relationship. You know, if if you're kicking and screaming because you're going to have to meet someone, you don't have a good relationship. So the day of the Lord kind of shakes out that way. God wants to turn repeating sinners into repentant sinners. We're all sinners. We, we can't get away from that. I mean, you can tell me you're not, and I'll tell you another lie, and we'll be even. But 
But the deal is he wants to turn repeating sinners into repentant sinners. Here's the last one. God is as, is as a picture of this. He's as excited and happy about us and who we can be as a parent is over their newborn. The problem is we don't believe it and we don't reciprocate it. If you want to know how God feels about you, go to the hospital and hang out at the nursery room window. Making faces, ooing and eyeing. This is how God feels about you. This is ultimately the driving factor in God's heart. Yes, he'll correct us. Yes, he'll discipline us. But this is who he is. The problem is we don't believe it. And so then we don't reciprocate back. Because it's hard to love a God that's looking through the window and goes, they're not right. Something's wrong with them. They need to change this. Their head's too big. Their feet's too small. It's hard to reciprocate for a God like that. And if that's your God, you're going to have trouble reciprocating to that. All right, that was a rush trip through Zephaniah. We'll pick up from there next week. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this book. Thank you for the fact that every time I crack open one of these minor prophets and think, man, what am I going to find in here? You never cease to amaze me. And Father, I know it is a little monotonous because the message is all the same, but I'm wondering if maybe it's monotonous because you're trying that hard to get through to us. And, and so you do what every parent does. You just keep repeating it and keep repeating it and keep repeating it. This is that important to you. It's so important to you to take this many chapters out of a book to try to get our attention. And I pray you'll get our attention, Father. But I pray, Father, that we will realize that what's holding us back is not you, it's us. What's keeping us from joy is not you, it's us. What's keeping us from flourishing, from having the, the job we love, the marriage we like, the children we want? What's keeping us from having everything that we desire? It's not you. It's us. We are the ones standing in the way. And I think sometimes it's because we're just not really sure you're that interested in it. And yet everything I see in your word, even in these gloomy minor prophets, talks about your desire for us and your desire to rescue us and to sing over us and be joyful over us and, and redeem us. You're just waiting on us. So somehow this week, Father, take some area of our life where we've been holding back, where we've been trying to do it ourselves, where we've been scared of what you might want or do, where we've had trouble forgiving, where we've had trouble obeying, wherever it is. And help us to see you differently in that and live accordingly. And we ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen.